Streaming 24-7, on-demand archives, podcasts, and more. TalkZone.com. TalkZone.com. Saying a lot for planet Earth. Now, the Dr. Robbins Show, talking about your good health. Featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW, on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Robbins Show. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins, here with my co-host, Susie Robbins. Each and every week, we bring you cutting-edge medical stories of the week, and also our favorite segments, where you can email us and we'll answer questions on the air. You can reach us at doclarryrobbins at aol.com, or just go to the website, headachedrugs.com. That's headachedrugs.com. The first story this week is actually a couple of articles that came out about workplace stress and depression. There was a large study that you may have seen where they looked at different careers as far as depression. The least depressing careers appeared to lie in architecture, engineering, the sciences, and in installation maintenance and repair fields. Combined data from 2004 to 2006 indicate that 7% of full-time workers and this was ages 18 to 64, experienced a major depression each year. So that's 7% each year. They went on to say that while rates of depression were higher among the unemployed and part-time workers, 52% of the adults who reported depression were employed full-time. Full-time workers make up more than half of the adult population. And we've talked about this on the show before. Depression exacts a heavy price from workers and their employees and families, but just lost work time is at least $36, $37 billion a year in productivity. So the following were rates of depression by job category. Uh, personal care, 10%. Uh, food preparation and serving. Uh, waitresses, etc., 10%. Chefs in the kitchen. Community and social service, 9.6%. Healthcare practitioners, uh, doctors, nurses, etc., 9.6%. A little less for the media. And then education, which would be teachers, etc., 8.7%. But now it dips down financial and sales, only 6.7%. And legal, 6.4%. You'd think that people in the legal profession would have more depression. Management down 5.8%. Construction, 4.8%. Maintenance and repair, 4.4%. Life, physical, and social sciences, 4.4%. And engineering, architecture, 4.3%. Now, there was also an accompanying article that came out on work stress and higher depression risk. People who feel chronically stressed on the job may face an increased risk of depression. Those under heavy stress at work are particularly at increased risk for depression each year. Now, there's other health risks with chronic job stress, including high blood pressure and heart disease, as well as depression, but the depression studies have been limited in the past to either certain occupations or simple uh, one company. In this study, they, they found that men who reported high job strain were more than twice as likely to suffer depression as men who were lower on the job strain scale. Support from coworkers and supervisors was very important. The conclusion is that with people on the job, we should do better depression screening and treatment and give support if we can. Susie, what's your take? 
I think it's interesting that the um, professions at the lower end of depression, such as engineering, architecture, installation, maintenance, repair, say take those professions, for example, why would they have less depression? Is it maybe because they're more hands-on in terms of what they're doing, they're physically working versus maybe as much working with other people? Could that be? Well, yeah. Part of it was the life sciences like biologists or physicists. They're either doing research or out in the field. Uh, they're not dealing with heavy-duty interpersonal problems. Uh, architects are, and they are under stress. I'm surprised that architects have very low depression, but it's interesting. Maybe they like their work, and engineers do make a fair amount of money. Maybe that factors into it, and they like their work. I think the healthcare profession is under a lot of stress legally. There's been so much insurance and paperwork and everything that everybody's complaining. They're stressed out, and uh, that can factor into depression. At the top of the list, waitresses, uh, short-order cooks, etc., etc., are under stress, relatively low pay, and uh, we have increased depression as a uh, as a result. You know, at the top of the list, we had personal care, and they don't exactly define it in the article, but certainly caregivers of uh, and family members of people with Alzheimer's or people who are very sick have very high rates of depression uh, chronically, and uh, I think it's very stressful being a caregiver. And more and more we see with the aging population, we're going to see this constantly, uh, more and more caregivers and uh, probably more depression as a result because financially, physically, emotionally, they don't get anything good. It's not like at the end of the day somebody said, you took care of your aging father with Alzheimer's and you did a great job. You know, they don't get any positive support there. Now, in the next study, we talk about the value of annual medical checkups. And there was a major study recently that cast some doubt on should people get annual physicals. And there's a number of ways to look at it financially, uh, but I think that there's more important ways to look at it. But in this study, the customary annual physical checkup, they said, may not be worth the time or money. Uh, we need to question encouraging everybody to come in for an annual physical. Is it worth it? There's a lot of money, a lot of visits, a lot of adults going to the doctor. It's the number one reason why adults see their doctor. Uh, the researchers felt that that no major North American clinical organization advises people to get an annual medical checkup, but most adults and doctors recommend it. The institution of the annual medical checkup intended to detect or prevent unseen health problems dates back to the early 1900s. Now, I think that if you look maybe financially, strictly financially in dollars and cents, you can make a case that it may not be worth annual checkups, but most people don't have a regular doctor. Um, most women just rely on their OB-GYN, etc., and it's very motivating going to a doctor, I find. If you're overweight, if you have high blood pressure, cholesterol, etc., it's actually motivating to uh, shape up and uh, not get a lecture from the doctor, etc., etc. The doctors find a lot of things in these checkups, blood pressure, diabetes, uh, cholesterol, and that prevents problems. So say we cut out annual checkups and people don't have that connection with a doctor and you save a billion dollars, for instance. I think you're going to cost yourself $10 billion later on because you're going to miss diabetes, 
and high blood pressure. And the consequences of diabetes and high blood pressure are strokes, heart attacks, and a whole host of other things. So preventive maintenance is really where it's at. We have all kinds of advanced medicine in the United States uh, that's geared towards treating advanced stages of illnesses. But really, where we can save billions and billions of dollars is preventive care and finding things early. Susie, what do you think? I totally agree with what you're saying, uh, and that it does make sense on paper for us to all be going for annual checkups. And I even understand what you're saying about it being motivating. But I, for one, and maybe there's a lot of people out there that, that feel the way I do, I just hate going for that uh, annual checkup. And I think it's because I don't want to hear that there's anything bad going on. So if I can just continue along and everything seems fine, why do I want to go looking for trouble? And I think it's kind of an anxiety thing. I don't want to go and hear that my cholesterol has gone up or my blood pressure isn't good. Um, so I put it off. I mean, eventually I do go, but I just don't find it a, a pleasant thing planning on going. Uh, that's a good point. I think what you're saying is that it's human nature. I think it's human nature. You know, if we feel okay, uh, why stir up the pot uh, and that's actually why I think high blood pressure, people often don't take their medicine and cholesterol because they don't feel it. And if it's not, if it's not like having daily headaches or pain where you're going to take painkillers, if they don't feel it, uh, it's human nature to sort of out of sight, out of mind. Moving on to a, an interesting study, it was about kids and support from their parents. Moms and dads who both offer lots of support and reassurance when their kids express negative emotions may not be doing them a favor. This was a study in four- and five-year-olds. It was a well-done study. Uh, and the children whose parents reacted with differing level, levels of support, sometimes supportive, sometimes not so much, sometimes mixed to the kids, were actually the kids were more emotionally mature and handled conflict better. The researchers say it's good to give your child some support uh, with conflict or with emotional problems, but also at the same time, you have to give them some space to manage the problem. In both of these experiments that they reported on, the children whose parents showed different levels of support to the kids, where mom was supportive, dad wasn't, for instance, or dad said something different, those kids fared the best. They showed the greatest emotional understanding and less conflict with friends. It was pointed out that kids who get very high levels of support from mom and dad may be missing the opportunity to learn how to cope with negative situations. Kids who see parents react, who react differently, where mom reacts differently to dad to a situation, are developing a more sophisticated understanding of emotions. Now, particularly, I think this is relevant because in the 50s and 60s, uh, kids didn't have as much support. It wasn't a, as much of a kid or child-centered society where the child is put on a pedestal and given incredible support and everybody gets an A and everybody gets a trophy and a ribbon and self-esteem. You know, we've talked on the show before that there's some newer studies showing that boosting kids' self-esteem isn't all that great, especially if we do it in a false way. What's more important is giving them encouragement about the effort they put forward and not about the A that they achieved. And uh, everybody is different. We don't have to pretend that every kid 
is a first place winner. So in the 50s and 60s and before that, you had kids were uh, given support from parents, but it wasn't as over the top and as all encompassing. And now you see kids where their parents are, their career is really the kids. And it is, they protect the kids so much from negative consequences, negative emotions. We see this in the schools where the kid does something wrong or in the high school. Susie, where you worked in a high school with kids who had some problems with drugs, so often, whatever the kid does, the parents come in and, no, it's not my child's fault, it's your fault. You know, it's everybody else's to blame except their kids. And the kids are left really without the coping skills to cope with difficult situations. Susie, what do you think? What I think is interesting about this study is that for so long we all hear how parents should be on the same page when uh, dealing with their kids have a united front. And here this study is suggesting that it's actually good for kids to hear their parents express different feelings on a subject or to tell Johnny differing opinions on how to handle something, which is really interesting. And maybe that's, in the long run, much more normal. And the way the world works is that no two people can ever be on the same page with each other. So if parents feel that it is okay to express their feelings, even though it's not the same as, as their spouse or maybe even um, their uh, former spouse, that that's actually good for the kids. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you pointed out that we would think naturally that uh, if, if the parents should be on the same page and be better for the kids. Uh, say the kid comes in with a quandary or some difficult situation with a friend or somebody's beating them up and mom says, uh, one thing and uh, dad says another. Say mom says, uh, oh, that's terrible that Johnny beat you up. You know, I'm going to call the mom of uh, Johnny and uh, he won't do it again. And dad says, no, let kids uh, handle it on your own. You go and if he beats you up, beat him up again, you know, hit him. And uh, so they have different ideas, mom and dad. Uh, naturally, we might think that maybe they should be on the same page and together. And this is why we need studies, because here they have a good study, and it shows it's not so great to always be on the same page as mom and dad, and that the kid listens to both sides and can filter things out and solve the problem himself in the developing brain. You know, these were four-, five-, six-year-olds, I think, uh, in this study. So, you know, they're just developing these coping skills. Uh, there's so many areas of medicine where something seems logical, and then you do a study. When I was back uh, many years ago, when I was a resident, there were these bypasses around clogged arteries in the neck. They were called extracranial, intracranial bypasses. And we did some of those. And the pictures look great. We created much better blood flow around the blockage. And uh, the idea is if you have a lot better blood flow, people won't have a stroke, right? Well, they did a nationwide study on this. And lo and behold, it turned out that uh, if you did these extracranial bypasses around the blockage, people had just as many strokes, and it didn't matter. So uh, those went by the wayside, and they were basically stopped being done. So we need big studies, and this is really, this points it out. Maybe we ought to leave the kids to fend a little more for their own, like the kids many years ago were left. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. 
Now, there was also an interesting new study on estrogen. Uh, as we know, estrogen can cause problems, but I've been always interested in very low doses of estrogen because the studies that I'm familiar with indicate that in menopause, low, low doses of estrogen don't really increase the risk for breast cancer, which is the main risk. And this study, they, they looked at a very low dose of estrogen in a patch, 0.014 milligrams per day, a, a low, low dose patch, and they found that it was effective for easing menopausal hot flashes, maybe, maybe not in everybody. Uh, the dosage has been shown also to increase bone strength, even though it's tiny, but it was not known whether such microdosing relieves menopausal symptoms in the past, and in this study, they looked at these tiny doses of estrogen in a patch, and they did relieve the menopausal symptoms. So the researchers conclude that the microdose estrogen patch may therefore be a valuable therapy for many women initiating menopausal hormonal therapy, combining effective symptom relief with minimal side effects and maximum patient acceptance, because when you go up in the dose, you get more side effects. Susie, uh, what do you think? Well, it just confirms again for me that there is no set prescription for everybody navigating menopause and that we really, as women going through menopause, have to really read up on a lot of this ourselves and maybe talk to more than one doctor about what's the best plan for each of us. I know for myself, about a year ago, I was having a lot of menopausal symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats. And I tried a few over-the-counter type herbs. I think one was called black cohosh, which I did not get any relief from. And, a, you know, a recent study on black cohosh failed to show that it helped menopausal symptoms. That was disappointing. That is disappointing for people who maybe want to hold off on um, any kind of estrogen. But then my symptoms pretty much just disappeared. They just stopped, and I don't know if they're going to come back or not. I certainly haven't ended menopause. But the question that I have over and over, and I actually went to a second doctor for an opinion, is what about the women out there who aren't experiencing the menopausal symptoms but maybe still want to have a little bit of extra estrogen just for the protection? It's not so easy to get then unless you have the symptoms. And that's what confuses me. If women who have symptoms take it and they get the benefits of it, why can't women who don't have the symptoms but are clearly in menopause take it and, and get the benefits also? Well, it, it's risk-benefit ratio with estrogen. The risk, is it worth um, the benefits? What, what are the risks? You know, the risks are increased risk for cancer in some women at some age. You know, after menopause, our reaction to estrogen changes than before. At age 30, we don't have the risk from estrogen that we do at 55. And the risk is also goes up with estrogen as far as cancer appears with the number of years that you take it, more than five years or so. Uh, the benefits outside of helping the menopausal symptoms like hot flashes and mood swings, etc., um, the benefits are mostly osteoporosis, and it does help skin, skin and bones. But the benefits that they thought on the heart didn't uh, really pan out. It, it, going on estrogen didn't seem to really help uh, prevent heart attacks or heart failure, etc. So it's iffy. If, if a woman's not having any symptoms from menopause, uh, whether to go on estrogen is, is a very questionable thing. I think that uh, if she's at a high risk for osteoporosis, you can make a, ca uh, a, um, a case for it. 
but we, none of this is written in stone. You know, we're still evolving. And I like these micro doses of estrogen, the idea, because the risk is just so much low, uh, lower or maybe even non-existent with tiny doses. So, Susie, uh, if you were having some menopause symptoms, uh, why did you end up not going on estrogen? Well, because I wanted to uh, see what happened with the symptoms, but as I said, they did disappear, and so the doctors were hesitant in prescribing estrogen. Um, but I'm wondering, and I would imagine a lot of people out there also are wondering about uh, the strength of their bones I, for one, am taking um, Actinel, which is one of the bones strengthening. I think they're called phosphate. Uh, is that what they're called, Larry? Well, Actinel, Fosamax, and Boniva are all part of the same class that uh, does have some risks and some problems like the jaw risk that's a very rare bad side effect with jaw pain and necrosis. But generally they've been uh, pretty good medicines. There's actually one out now. Uh, I'm not sure how extensively it's going to be used that, where they give an intravenous infusion of a Fox, Fosamax-type medicine once a year, once a year, and, and it seems to be helping prevent osteoporosis. So that might be an option for some women. But I know you had talked about going on estrogen, and you know I think part of it depends on which doctor you end up going to see. The doctors are split on how much they use estrogen. Don't you think that's true? Well, it, it does seem to be. Um, but at least I feel good knowing that I am taking Actinel, even if I'm not taking the estrogen. You know, as we were talking a little bit before about people not always going in for, to see their doctor on an annual basis, I will say that I'm very glad that I did go in to see my OBGYN doctor, and I've always gone to see her on a regular basis, and that I did have my first bone density test at 50, which said that I do need to be on um a bone-building medicine. So for all of you out there that are getting close to turning 50, um, it does seem like it's very important that you, especially for women, that you do have that baseline bone density test to see where exactly you are with your bone health. Yeah, and I think the bone density test is important, but it's one that a lot of women do skip, and men should have it too. Men get osteoporosis very often. Um, because it's another out of sight, out of mind. You know, it's another thing to do, another test, another cost. Now, the next article really points out that we're in a druggy culture, and particularly adolescents are doing a lot of drugs, although there's been some previous studies that showing that drug use is actually dropping. But here, a snapshot of an average day in the lives of U.S. teens shows that hundreds of thousands are smoking, drinking, and taking illegal drugs. On an average day, about 1.2 million teenagers smoke cigarettes, 630,000 drank alcohol, and 580,000 used marijuana. Now, I'm not quite sure exactly how many uh, adolescents there are in the country, but this is a lot of, uh, of kids who are smoking, drinking, and uh, smoking marijuana. Almost 50,000 in the typical day used inhalants as far as inhaled um, glue and uh, various other substances that you inhale to get high. 27,000 in the typical day used hallucinogens, which are uh, LSD and the more natural ones, peyote, mescaline, etc. 13,000 used cocaine, 
and 3,800 used heroin in the typical day. So what they said that was in the average, uh, uh, in uh, 2006, on average, about one-third of adolescents, this is age 12 to 17, one-third drank alcohol in the past year anyways, and one-fifth used an illegal drug or and also one-sixth smoked. So about um, a fifth of adolescents are using some sort of drug, mostly cocaine, marijuana, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, marijuana would be the number one illegal drug that uh, kids do use. Now, they broke it down. On any one day, uh, about 8,000 adolescents drank their first drink of alcohol. Uh, 4,300 adolescents used an illegal drug for the first time. 4,000 smoked cigarettes for the first time. And that's surprising. I thought cigarettes because of all the publicity and the cost of cigarettes going up so much, had dropped more. Uh, almost 3,600 adolescents use marijuana, so many more are drinking, actually, for the first time in any one day. And pain relievers, for the first time we're showing painkillers, prescription painkillers, or ones they can get from friends or buy off the street or steal from parents' uh, medicine cabinets, are showing up as a major substance abuse issue in kids. In any one given day, 2,500 youngsters abused pain relievers for the first time. And finally, 76,000 children and teens uh, were in outpatient treatment for alcohol or drug abuse, and 10,000 are in non-hospital residential treatment. And for all the kids who are in treatment, uh, many more need treatment. Now, despite the fact that we're making some headway, that the rates of uh, certain drugs are dropping, it's still a, an enormous problem. Now, Susie, you worked with kids uh, who were uh, having some trouble with drugs or alcohol as far as uh, teenagers in high school, and it it does affect all socioeconomic groups, doesn't Does it not? Uh, I think we would all agree that absolutely it does. Um, you know, and as far as the alcohol part, I think for many kids, their first sip is taken in their own home where they can have such easy access to alcohol in a cabinet alcohol that their parents are drinking. Um, you know, I want to throw this out. It just, it's kind of a personal aside, but it's interesting that one point you made about uh, kids taking prescription drugs from their parents' cabinet, say, for pain, parents taking for pain relief. You know, I don't know if that's such a new uh, phenomenon or not. I can remember years and years ago in high school and myself, many kids coming to dances high on something that they took from their parents' cabinet. So maybe it's just being recorded now, but I don't know what everybody out there remembers, but I sure remember um, kids doing it years ago. Well, uh, prescription drug abuse in general, yeah, it was available. It was uh, a problem many years ago. But in the whole adult population, it's grown greatly. The use of Vicodin, hydrocodone, codeine, OxyContin, uh, the use of these drugs has gone way up in the last 15 years. So naturally, it filters down into kids stealing it out of their Cabinets. I think uh, the kids can buy it from friends off the street, etc. But I think the number one way that they get it probably 
is getting in and out of uh, medicine cabinets, either parents or friends' parents stealing in there, and that's very common. What you're saying, implying from the article, is that yes, it's all it's prevalent, and what that's bringing to mind for me is is that this has been for many many years that young people are going to experiment um, with what's in their house, with what their friends can buy off the street. My own experience seeing drug usage in the high schools is that it's a really tough area to try to eradicate. Uh, young people are going, uh, just over the years, are are bound to determine to uh, experiment with drugs. Yeah, I think that it's um, probably been around for... Uh for centuries in one way or another, at least in this country for the last 100 years with various substances in adolescence. Alcohol, it's interesting, is is always the number one substance abuse. And in adults, uh, alcohol is the major problem. We do have a problem with cocaine and with other illegal drugs, but alcohol always remains number one. And we can't forget about cigarettes, too. Even though the rates of smoking have gone down, as we all know, adolescents don't feel that anything bad can happen to them. They think that they're immortal, and uh, so cigarettes they don't see as really much of a problem. I think one, uh, outside of the publicity, negative publicity, and the fact that you can't smoke anywhere publicly in a lot of uh, locales, the uh, cigarette situation, they've gotten so much more expensive, most teenagers have a hard time affording them. Susie? You know, and hopefully because so many more adults have stopped smoking over the years, that that trickle-down effect of smoking to their children will also have slowed down. You know, I think all of us can relate to knowing people growing up whose parents smoked that maybe then their kids would start smoking because it was there and available. And if it's not there and available as often anymore, I would hope and think that less kids would be taking up the habit. It in, lock it on, and rip the mouse off. TalkZone.com. Now, more of the Dr. Robbins Show with your host, Larry Robbins, MD, on TalkZone.com. Now, in another study, they've looked at the effect of concussions on men in sports very much, but they haven't done a lot of studies on women in sports. And in this study, up to eight months after suffering a concussion, Women college soccer players still had some impairment, usually mild, in their mental functions. Contrary to what's typically thought, these effects are longer lasting. They're mild but prolonged. Now, concussions have different grades, and there's mild, moderate, severe concussions, and it matters as far as what the long-term sequelae or long-term outlook is. But in the study, the concussed athletes, these were uh, women college soccer players, performed significantly more slowly on tests of complex reaction time, flexibility, and planning. But their short and long-term verbal memory and uh, simple reaction times were not impaired. Based on similar studies in males, the findings suggest that females may be more vulnerable to the effects of a concussion probably due to more fragile brain structures and weaker neck and shoulder muscles. And I think uh, that that's a a great point. The strength of the neck is uh, protects some people from concussions. When you see these uh, football players or boxers with uh, a very thick bull neck, it really uh, cushions them 
from their head flopping back with a blow to the head and creating a concussion. When you get a concussion, your brain squishes against uh, one part of the skull and then reverberates and squishes against the other side. And there's a name for that type of injury called a coup and contra-coup injury. And if you have a big, thick, really strong neck, it helps does help to protect from that. You know, we're realizing that uh, men and women are very different as far as uh, susceptibilities to certain injuries. For instance, you see in high schools and colleges, a lot of women, a lot of women basketball and soccer teams where uh, there's uh, a lot of girls wearing braces on their knee. turns out that women are probably more likely to get ACL, anterior cruciate ligament injuries in the knee than men. And there's been quite a number of uh, studies on why this is. One theory looked at that uh, women run more upright and the boys run more bent over, which places less stress on the ACL. But as far as the concussions, the hypothesis was that concussions can damage the brain's prefrontal region. And our prefrontal region is crucial for a lot of things. The prefrontal region is right uh, below the forehead. And actually, our prefrontal region is actually our filtering region. It filters in, if you have a lot of thoughts and uh, you shouldn't say them, your prefrontal region filters what you should be saying. But in uh, certain people, particularly with mania or bipolar, hypomania, mania, their prefrontal region is not working. And whatever they're thinking up there, they're saying it. It's this constant ticker tape of uh, thoughts, and they're saying it, and they don't have the filtering mechanism. So the researchers did say that soccer players, uh, particularly the girls who've had a concussion, should be off the field until they've gone a week without having any symptoms, such as the post-concussion symptoms like dizziness, headache, nausea, balancing problems. I think that in the past, particularly we pushed young athletes back uh, and pro athletes and it's a much better situation now, like in the National Football League. They're keeping athletes uh, out for weeks or a whole season after a serious concussion. But before, they were pushed right back into the game. And the study points out that even after a uh, mild or moderate concussion, they're still having some lingering memory problems quite a while afterwards. Susie? Well, for people listening out there who maybe have a child who's had a concussion or two, how much of a worry is it, you know, long-term in terms of if they've had a concussion a few years back and maybe they've just had one concussion, is that something to worry about or not really? No. Uh, one simple concussion, we base concussions somewhat on how much amnesia there was. And if people had a concussion where they forgot the whole day, that's a serious concussion. Or if they were having severe post-concussion symptoms, uh, headaches, etc., for weeks or months. But most people with your typical con- concussion, what happens is they have brief loss of consciousness, not too much, uh, like a second or two, not too much amnesia. They sort of remember the play in, in uh, sports, or they sort of remember walking along, and uh, they remember lying there and then people standing over them. But if they forgot a lot of time before the concussion, or they don't remember anything except waking up in the hospital. It's more serious, and they can have uh, people can have problems, but it is cumulative uh, in general. You think of boxers with cumulative multiple concussions, football players, 
So they do add up. And that's why with young athletes with um, concussions, I'm very conservative about when they should go back to play, and especially if, they, if they've had more than one concussion. You know, I think I heard of movement a few years ago, and I don't know what's happened with it, where there was a push to having all younger kids who played soccer wear helmets. And I don't know where that's at, but I recall my daughter who played in high school saying something like, I couldn't imagine ever having to wear a soccer when I was wearing a helmet when I was playing soccer. But I know that there were a lot of concerned people out there wanting to look into that idea. You know, that's a really interesting point. Um, I know our, our kids played soccer and uh, I coached some soccer and, uh, the issue is, does a helmet help? If, for instance, heading the ball, if the ball is wet and heavy and the goalie punts it and you jump up, and I remember in high school uh, having my brain rattled around with some heading the ball that way, it's really cumulative heading. If you look at soccer players who are pros in their 20s, they've had a lot of little head injuries, heading the ball, banging heads with other people, and it does add up. Uh, they do have changes on neuropsychological testing, on memory, et cetera, et cetera. But the average recreational high school player who doesn't play in college, I don't think that it's much of an issue. The issue is, would helmets in uh, soccer prevent the head injuries? Are they worth it? And I think that's really up in the air. And the other thing is, uh, say it would prevent three injuries a year in the country, that are moderate or severe injuries to the head. Is that worth it? Uh, preventing, you know, having millions of kids wear helmets all the time. I don't know. And what we need is more research on helmets in soccer. Now, in another study, they look, this has been looked at before. They looked at the effect of anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen, which is Advil or Aleve, not Tylenol, not acetaminophen or Tylenol. But ibuprofen, Advil, or naproxen, Aleve, those are the -the over-the-counter anti-inflammatories. It appears that taking these does lower the risk for developing breast cancer in women. And definitely those anti-inflammatories have been associated before with lower colon cancer risk. But also now uh, it appears, and there's been studies on this before, that breast cancer may be lower in women who've taken these anti-inflammatories on a consistent basis. Now, in this study, about a quarter of the participants were regular, which was defined as everyday use for at least two months. Regular use of these medications was associated with 24% lower risk of breast cancer. The breast cancer risk decreased with increased duration of NSAID use, and was lowest after seven or more years of use by the women. Now, the issue is should everybody go on these medicines? There are significant downsides to the anti-inflammatories, mostly stomach. They cause a lot of ulcers and heartburn, uh, liver irritation, but kidney irritation. A lot of people on these medicines, if they're on too much of them, more than two a day on average, their kidneys are slightly irritated and that raises the risk for eventually ending up on dialysis. So I don't think we want to recommend that, in general, millions of women go on anti-inflammatories. But if you happen to be on them, uh, and millions of people are because of arthritis and neck pain and back pain and headaches, uh, this is a positive sidelight benefit to the anti-inflammatories. 
it's interesting to look at the mechanism. These medicines like ibuprofen, Advil, Aleve, lower uh, inflammation. They're anti-inflammatories, and that has a role to play in cancer. You know, what about, I know for myself, I had been, I attempted to take a baby aspirin uh, daily. This was years ago, but I found myself bruising all over, and I think that does happen with some people who take a daily aspirin. Does that happen also with the Aleves? Yeah, it, it can. They affect the platelets, although not as much as aspirin. Uh, when your platelets, which are the little particles that help your blood clump up and prevent bruising and they help you from stopping bleeding, when they're affected by the aspirin, which is the idea, we want aspirin to decrease clumping of the platelets, um, you're going to bruise. Some people just can't take aspirin or any of these medicines. Aspirin helps prevent strokes and heart attacks, and the anti-inflammatories like Advil, uh, ibuprofen, probably don't. In fact, taking the anti-inflammatories can raise your blood pressure a little bit, and that can have an effect long-term on strokes and heart attacks. These NSAIDs do raise the blood pressure. That's another downside of these medicines. You know, I think 90% of our serious side effects to the medicines are from the anti-inflammatories. Now, on a sort of positive note, there's a very aggressive brain tumor called glioma, and uh, generally nothing has worked. You know, they've tried, uh, there's been so much research into gliomas, which are deadly within six months to two years once you're diagnosed with it. From what I've seen in the last 30 years, that no treatments have really done all that much good. But now comes uh, a newer drug from Genentech. It's a colon and lung cancer drug called Avastatin, A-V-A-S-T-I-N, Avastin. And along with standard therapy, it does increase the survival rates of people with this deadly glioma of the brain. Now, this is recurrent glioma when it comes back, and in the studies, 77% were still alive six months after the start of treatment, and 46% of people had no tumor growth uh, from the avastin. The researchers said that they feel comfortable saying that it's the first treatment for recurrent glioma that's really making a difference, and I think that that's probably true. Now, this chemotherapy does have risks, like all chemotherapy, but anything that can extend the life with glioma, and um, they're not talking about a cure here, but if you can stop the progression and stop it from growing, you can give months or maybe uh, years of, uh, of life. We'll see. I do know that nothing else particularly has worked, And glioma does hit all ages. Uh, Very often it hits younger and middle-aged people in the prime of life with families, and all of a sudden they have this diagnosis, and that's it. It's just a terrible diagnosis. So anything that can help uh, is very welcome. The first patient that I saw with glioma, I'm a neurologist, uh, many years ago she came in, 23-year-old, nursing student with a tiny little area of tumor in her brain, and um, we didn't think that much of it. Three months later, her whole brain was filled with glioma tumor, and she died. And the weird thing is, if you have a tiny little tumor, say it's the head of a pin is the size on the right side, and you take out the whole right half of the brain, 
you just take out everything, all the brain around it and a whole bunch of brain, uh, it still doesn't matter. It still comes back. It's just the weirdest, most aggressive tumor. Now, our final uh, study is interesting. It's small changes can help kids avoid weight gain. But I think this is a very important study and message. Encouraging families to cut out 100 calories worth of sugar per person a day and walk an extra mile or so can help prevent kids from getting fat. Uh, in the study, they looked at very small changes. Now, walking an extra mile is not very small, uh, but there are some small lifestyle changes, they said, that families can do that fit into their busy, crazy lives and can have a big impact on weight and the weight of the kids. We found that when families start get started doing these small changes, they actually tend to do more. And I think this has a lot more practical application than taking a kid who's 14, 15 years old, who's 30, 50 pounds overweight, and saying, you're going to have to go on the strict dial and you're, and you're going to have to exercise an hour a day, blah, blah, blah. The kids won't do it. The parents are reluctant. If we work on very small little steps, I think over a period of time, it does work. They're talking about 100 calories less a day, which is less than a candy bar, and moving a little bit more. It's the old Weight Watchers motto, to eat less and move more. Doesn't it seem that in the last few years there has been much more of a concern about childhood obesity as a matter of fact, a few days ago, I saw a commercial on television, which I thought was pretty amazing. It showed a kid on what looked like a exercise bicycle, and he was pedaling very quickly, and at the same time, he was playing a video game on the television. But as it turned out, he can only play the game as long as he kept pedaling. So it was this one toy manufacturer's answer to how do we get our kids off the floor and playing video games and exercising this way the kid can continue to play their video games but they're getting exercise at the same time i think that's a great idea the other thing is you know we've gone to a nation of kids playing nintendo and listening to their ipods being on the computer these are all sedentary activities we didn't have much many years ago so it's basically parents shoot the kids outside just go out and play and come back when it's dinner time and I think that was a lot healthier lifestyle. Somehow, if we could get back to that. Now, you know, the kids play organized sports, but they're not that interested if it's not an organized practice or an organized where parents bring them. Telling them to go out with a ball and just play, they look at you like you're goofy. And how much of this has been borne out because of parents' concerns about their child's safety in a neighborhood unsupervised? Most mornings I'm driving by our neighborhood school about the time that school is starting, and it sure seems to me that there are less and less kids getting off that bus and more and more moms dropping their kids off. You don't even see that many walkers anymore. It's kind of sad to see that our society has become so much where everything is door-to-door being dropped off by mom and dad. You know, I agree totally. The other day I was driving to the local school here. You know, I saw a couple moms bringing their kids, who looked like they were about 10, 11 years old, walking their kids a block to uh, school. And, if you know, it's a sad commentary, and I think part of it is the media. Everything is wall-to-wall pedophiles. Wall-to-wall, maybe they ought to have the wall-to-wall cable pedophile station where, you know, they're warning everybody. 
But there's been studies that show that the world is not all that more dangerous now than 35 years ago as far as kids being snatched and pedophiles. It may even be safer. So we're just more aware and crazed about it. But the bottom line is kids are not being let out, as you said, to just play and be kids. Well, that'll wrap it up for this edition of the Dr. Robbins Show. Thank you to my co-host, Susie Robbins. You can certainly email us through the website if you just go to headachedrugs.com. That's one long word, www.headachedrugs.com. See you next week. You've been listening to The Dr. Robbins Show, featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW. Learn more about Dr. Robbins online at HeadacheDrugs.com. And join us next time for more about health and medicine right here on The Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com.